To whom much is given, much is required. Part of that requirement is sharing. Culture is the heartbeat within our lives, and it's at the core of so many things. While we live in a time when we are starving for wisdom, I welcome you to your wisdom retreat at Culture Raises Us. Wendell Haskins, today's guest, a multifaceted leader in the diversity and inclusion and marketing space, 20 plus years of experience in the sports, entertainment, corporate social responsibility and philanthropy spaces, also played a very, very key role in shaping uh, the nightlife culture in New York City in the early 90s, when this was a very, very defining, what I call, moment of shaping culture. I've had the pleasure of knowing him for 25 plus years. Super excited to share this story. But before we do so, I would love to get your thoughts on when you hear culture, what does that mean to you? First of all, it's the late 90s, not the early, not the early 90s. <laughs> We're taking all the 90s. We're taking all the 90s. I, I was just immersed in the late 90s. Man. I, I love it. And listen, man, when I think of culture, I, I think of... Um, you know, uh, like-minded people with a similar mission and purpose, you know, mm. and, you know, culture is, is always been very important to me. And, you know, you're parts of many cultures when you're a part of a culture or cultures, right? So you have ethnicity, you have, you know, community, you have, you know, you have industry, you know, all those different cultures. It's typically for me, when I think of culture, it's, uh, you know, like-minded people with similar interests, common goals, and, and uh, moving towards a, a a same purpose is, is a culture. It's so fitting that you said different components and like-minded individuals, because I, I look at, given you know your positioning across all these facets of Black culture that kind of spans across music, fashion, sport, I would love to get your thoughts on if there was like this particular moment when you realized just how big and instrumental this culture was to shaping and influence of the global landscape as we know it today. Yeah, I mean, I, I can say, you know, coming up and, you know, coming out of college, going to Hampton and then coming to uh, back to New York, coming back home and my sister working in the music business, right? She, my sister was three years older than me. She worked for Jive Records and she was working with all of these groups at the time that no one had ever heard of, you know, A Tribe Called Quest and um, Bully Down Production. She was giving me all this music and, uh, you know, she worked for Jive and she, my sister was the one who really introduced me to the culture of black music that exists. I had no idea that even some of those jobs existed, right? Well, a and R and styling and right, and, you know, and she was doing you know this amazing work and traveling and seemed to be having fun and you know loving the work that she worked on and then the Will Smith, Jazzy Jeff and the Fresh Prince doing all those people were were groups that she worked with at that time and um, I had never heard of these groups or knew anything about them and uh, certainly we were already influenced by early hip hop right. Um, but when I really saw that she had a job doing this, <laughs> that part, a nine to five getting paid. Yeah. Like she had a job doing this. So my first job when I came home from college was working for the United Way of New York City 
that my dad helped me get a job from one of his friends. They both went to Syracuse together, worked in civil rights. My dad worked for the National Urban League. And, you know, he worked for Vernon Jordan, you know, John Jacob and Whitney Young. So I was really influenced by, you know, the civil rights movement and the work that they did in the civil rights space. But he had no idea of anything about the music business in my family, you know. But he did help my sister get a job as well. And one of her first jobs was at working at RCA. And that's how she got introduced to Jive. And she got, you know. But um, her being a few years younger than me, I had no idea what she was doing or what she was up to, you know, you know, employment wise. When I came home and I started visiting her job, you know, I'd leave my job at the United Way of New York City where I'm stomping the pavement, raising money, asking people to contribute to the United Way campaigns, doing that kind of stuff. Then I'm going to her job. and I'm like, this is really cool what she's doing, you know. She was working with Kumo D, and like I said, and and um, all of the artists on Jive at that time. And I'm saying, wow, this is a real business. Like this is a real industry. She's being employed, and these people are making music that's being heard all over the world. The world, you know. So that was probably really my first um, experience. Seeing, saying to myself, wow, this is an entire industry and a business that I really know nothing about, it has huge implications on the world. And it, not only that, Aster, as you can probably attest, I started getting introduced to the music business and seeing all of these young people that were executives. That part. You know, I'm like, these people were my peers, you know, people mm-hmm. that were my age, my sister's age, and they're, you know, in their 20s. And, you know, they had these cool jobs. And uh, I just started getting introduced to the, you know, to the music industry. That's where I actually met Puffy and he and I became friends. He was a couple of years younger than me, but, and, you know, he worked at Uptown at the time. And I'm like, these jobs, these people have are really cool. We are like, so I was like, how can I be a part of this? You know, but I, I didn't really have any experience. Like I'd never interned at a music company. Here I am working on the, uh, you know, in, uh, in, on the nonprofit side. And at that time, you know, it, there could have been a turning point for me to continue working in nonprofit because right. I, I went to the head of the president of United Nick way of New York city. And I said, look, I would like to start fundraising from the music business. Wow. Interesting. Cause you know, when I worked at the United way, we did, um, we were responsible for doing giving campaigns in in every industry. Wow! So you would go and say you you want to do a payroll deduction and give you know two dollars out of your paycheck every month to help the you know help the human services industry of New York. So you had people who worked in in finance. You had people who worked in the nonprofit sector, the commercial sector, advertising. Okay. Go to all of those companies and run the campaigns to raise money for the United Way. And at that time, I knew Andre Arell, I knew Russell, I knew all those guys. And but those those corporate guys, they didn't even know who these guys were. These were they weren't big names. So I went to I went to my you know a president. I said I went to my boss. I said, look, I'd like to set up a meeting with um with Andre Arell. Now Andre and those guys at the time knew me as Win Cool Win United Wish. That's right. That's right. That's right. That's right. So I was like, Dre. 
um, can I bring my, you know, set up a meeting and have my guy come over and, and talk to you about what the United Way does and so on and so forth. And Dre was like, yeah, set up a meeting. Our, pres our president kind of blew the meeting off. What, right. Not knowing who he was dealing with. Yeah. Blew the meeting off at the time. Set somebody else, some other lower level executive who probably yeah. had no business going to this meeting with me at all. And nothing ever really became of it. But it could have been, you know, the impetus and the segue to have a relationship within the music business in United Way of New York City. And it wasn't until many, many years later that they finally caught on. They caught on. Go you know, figure. Go and figure. It was a, and it was a huge missed opportunity, not only on their part, but probably for even the trajectory of my trajectory of my career. Because I, I, I may have stayed. Had that been a thing that you were able to build on in which could have been a significant piece of business opportunity for that company, like thousand percent. New York City. And it would have been the beginning of a relationship and huge gains and profits and, 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 and support for the United Way of New York City in the music business. But it was an untapped industry and they really never tapped into it. But uh, here I was, a probably, you know, 23 years old at the time saying, I want to set up this meeting with Andre. And then it, next it would have been Russell. And next, but, but the executives in my, in my company did not know who Didn't get it. Typical, typical leadership or interesting leadership that don't embrace the expertise of the team who have insight into things that they don't, right? It's, it's a wild concept. And it's funny that you even mentioned that in terms of, the, the general influence that the culture could have had even earlier on the business model that you were working in. But the other thing that you mentioned, which I just learned about, I didn't know about your legacy of activism, you know, and, and advocacy coming from your father's work, like you said, within this civil rights space at the National Urban League. And I think it's evident that that played a significant role in your why, I would assume. Um, but I wonder what was the most kind of memorable memory you have of your father doing this work at a young age? Oh, wow. You know, uh, that's a great question. My dad is the biggest influence on my life. Then. Um, and uh, when you talk about heroes, I don't, I don't use that term very loosely uh, in idols and things of that nature. There are people that have, I've, I've admired in my lifetime. Right. Dad is my hero and my idol. Oh, that's beautiful. Uh, you know, I was born in Washington, D.C. My dad worked for the Washington Urban League at that time, but he was a lifetime urban leaguer. Mm. So, you know, he had lived in several different cities going up the ranks as an urban league executive. So he had lived in Milwaukee, lived in Ohio. My mother was from Virginia. So he he moved from various cities. So it just so happened my sister was born in Virginia and they lived in Ohio. Then when he settled in Washington, D.C., I was born. And about four or five years after I was born, he was called for an opportunity as a senior executive at the National Urban League, which was oh. the big league, the big league. So, you know, he looked around for places to live, Westchester, Queens the Jersey side. All that. So he ended up settling on the Jersey side, but he worked in Manhattan every day. So we moved to Patterson, New Jersey, settled in Patterson, New Jersey, where I grew up pretty much all of my life. 
he because we never moved uh, other than we never moved in my childhood until he until he was time to retire. Gotcha. Um, so all of those people were huge influences in my life. I mean, Vernon Jordan probably uh, had a huge impact on my life because my dad worked for Mr. Jordan when he was the president of the National Urban League for many, many years. Right. You know, I would go to the National Urban League and meet all of these, you know, civil rights leaders. And I'd go to Mr. Jordan's office and play under his desk and with his pens and, you know what I mean? And, and just do things that kids do when they go to, you know, their father's job, you know? Right. Um, but certainly all of those people had a huge impact on my life and just seeing how they moved and operated. I would go to the National Urban League Conference every year as a kid because, you know, and that's that's honestly how I got to see all of these different cities as a young person because we didn't really go on family vacations. So my right. dad would make those conferences. The vacation, that's right. The paid for vacation. So I, we, that's how I saw California and Los Angeles. That's how I saw, you know, um, Chicago. That's how I got to go see all of these different cities when my dad was an urban leader. And then when I became of a certain age, about 14, he made sure that I had a job at the conference mm. every year, right? So, so dope. You know, he, he, you know, he knew guys that were, I mean, look, I would see how my dad engaged with a lot of his friends and his who were people that he also worked with that supported the Urban League. He had a guy named Marty Turby. He worked for Tangeray, right? So he he was the liquor guy. My dad's guy who was who was probably like when I equate my life to his, he's like that was probably my dad's Keenan Towns at the time. Right. Right. Keenan Towns. Yes, you do. Right. So then he had another guy who worked for Sunshine Biscuits. That was they made Chipper Roos and all these different companies. Then he got and had a guy work for Chock Full of Nuts. Right. All these. So my dad would, al would always talk to his friends about getting my sister, myself, and our friend John. Look, John. Urban League Conference was only a week. So you know you have all of these different um, companies that have vendors and give away samples and do things of that nature. So every year, at least for a week. I had a nice little gig, a well-paying job working for Sunshine Biscuits on the convention center floor. I love that. So, you know, every year, you know, I'd have my little tie on, my badge, and, and people would look for me year after year and became familiar with me because I was, my dad's friend's name was Sam Simmons. I remember all of these people. They're, they're no longer living. But, right. You know, I was their young employee, their young superstar for the, for the week to work their booth and their, you know, and, and be their, you know, their vendor, their vendor guy. So, you know, seeing how my dad, um, just managed all of those relationships and friendships and some people that he worked with were also our personal friends and family friends. Um, and the way they network, network them up, network amongst each other to make sure that their kids and people that they had relationships got jobs and opportunities. And, you know, to be able to, you know, have internships or even full-time jobs for people that they knew, I saw those kind of things firsthand and knew how important it was. Early. 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 My dad always fought for equal jobs, equal employment, equal housing, and equal equal opportunity. That's what the Urban League was all about. So those are the kind of things that were ingrained in me and my values because they were things that I you saw and benefited from early and it's crazy because now as i'm hearing this story now it, it gives even more context to your personality and everything that i've known of you over the years 
now it's really all clicking of where the foundation of that came from, right? And I'm so glad you shared the story about what your father did for you early in terms of plugging you into these opportunities, because that's very similar to what we hear of other cultures and communities, right? That we probably did not do the best then for a number of reasons that we can go down a road on. But I'm so glad that you're sharing that story because it adds so much more depth to who you are. And as I look at, you know, you and many of us, you know, have been in these corporate cultures and in jobs that were kind of intended to do the work within this multicultural diversity and inclusion spaces. And then we, we find out they were actually exposed to significant barriers, false commitments of support, unwarranted performance scrutiny. I mean, I can go off for days, right? You had a pretty memorable stint at the PGA and, and at quite the journey. Talk about some of that, especially within a sport culture that has very much been dominated over the years by one race, but has seen the influence of another that's taken it to new heights that it never would have gotten to without that of the underrepresented commitment and, and validation. Oh, listen, man, you know, coming where I coming from where I come from in terms of everything that you said, my dad, the values that I've had in me that are instilled in me that you would probably call diversity and inclusion now are just bait in me forever I show up, right? So it's part of your DNA, bro. I to think about how to move in that. That's right. This is cool you are. This is who I am. This is what you're going to get when I show up. Um, certainly in the golf space, um, you know, when I started in golf in, in New York, a lot of my peers and my friends weren't playing, but I wanted them to. And you know, I was already a promoter and doing things, tavern on the green and yeah. parties and things like that. But I said to myself, I fell in love with the game of golf and, and I immersed myself in everything that I could read about golf and the history and the culture and didn't see anything about black people. So knowing, you know, you have to think about who my influencers were at that time. Puffy starting Bad Boy and Russell starting, you know. Diff Jam Fat Farm. Well, I, I was surrounded by young black entrepreneurs that had vision to do things and to create things that changed the culture. Right. And they did it very authentically with as their authentic selves and showed up as they were with their people and, and, and they created the culture. So. You know, I saw there being a huge void in golf. And we know how black culture changes things, changes things, right? We know how it moves the needle when we when we show up and participate and get fully engaged and bring our authentic selves to the things that we do. It's always a game changer. Always. Right. And I don't just mean a game changer. I mean it. An, an economic game changer, call the things, all those things, all the right? things. So, me saying to myself, like, I'm I'm going through this golf experience as my myself as a new golfer, and I'm saying to myself, this game is like really cool. Like, you know, I'm saying, you know, I got introduced to some guys because of the things that I was doing. As you know, I decided to start a tournament of my own that celebrated braided, celebrated black culture. So, you know, I, I read in my readings that, you know, a black man had invented the golf tee. Several years later, a white guy did another version of the golf tee, largely got the credit for it. 
But what I said is like a black man holds the first patent for the golf tee. So I so I said the original tee was invented by a black man. That's right. Message. So, right? So I said, I'm going to name my my company, my brand, Original Tee. Uh, history of, of black people in golf to let you know that in the late 1800s, there was obviously a black man who was out there playing golf who took it upon himself to get a patent. So this is historic fact. So I said to myself, we always create things and oftentimes don't get the credit. Somebody else may come along or, right? You know how those things go. Absolutely. So I said, I want to create this event to make sure that this man is properly credited for his invention. I want to bring black culture and celebrate black culture at this event and make sure that we are never denied the credit that we deserve for the things that we do in this game. That's how, that's how original T was born. That's where the influences came from. And so I said, you know, I'm just going to create it and invite the people that I know to support this and people that understand the culture that exists. And that doesn't mean exclusively black either. That means people who are part of our, our culture who support this, understand it and appreciate it. So, you know, when I started that tournament many years ago, the NBA was my one my my first sponsor because of my great relationship with Danny Mizellas, who's one of my mm-hmm. best friends. And um, you know, he went to David Stern at the time and asked if they could be sponsors. And the NBA has been my longest running sponsor since day one for all of the twenty four years that I've been doing the run. And then wow. and then others came along along the way, and I, you know, and um, it really became my my you know my cornerstone of it and the mit and it and it set me off on a path that totally immersed me in the golf space allowed me to do some amazing things meet amazing people but um you know i met people from first from from so many different walks of life through through this golf journey um that have helped me along the way supported original t up until this you know to this very day so you know and it also it that also led me eventually to the opportunity at the PGA of America for the things that I was doing there. Yeah. And it, and it, it also positioned you in a very significant leadership role um, in terms of shifting a culture from the inside out. And, and, and leadership is something that obviously I feel you embody um, across the board. And, and you speak about the importance of that often. You also talk about how creativity is kind of needed for effective leadership. How do you creatively, though, look to ways for true change and reclaiming, to be honest, of our cultural impact and our, our IP or, or our equity as the leading underrepresented authenticators of all things? I mean, you know, that that's part of the that's part, you know, part of the challenge, right, to get people to join you on the journey. Right. You want to find, like I said, like minded people who who will support you along the way. And leadership is very interesting because the goal isn't to create more followers. The goal is to create more leaders. That part. Oof. Right. So everyone nowadays is obsessed with their followers, their followers. If you see some of the people that I've had an influence on, they become more leaders. The leaders. So I might not have a million followers, but I might have 12 great leaders out there that 
that hard. You know, the goal was never to get out here and try to have followers. It was like, I want you to be a part of the mission. I want you to take this information, process it, and do great things with the information that I'm going to share with you that you might be able to have a huge impact on others, right? So the original T event has been exactly that. So if you if you look at some of the things that it's accomplished and the people that have come through, even the original T tournament, it was always welcoming people to help them have a platform where they could meet influential people, meet people from Black Wall Street executives, where they could meet people in the entertainment business that they would never otherwise interface with, right? So, you know, whether that be Wyatt Worthington, who is a, you know, aspiring PGA professional, and he's he gets to meet, you know, David Jones or Anthony Spikes. Those guys are members at Baltrasol, right? He's gonna he's about to play at the PGA championship. He's never been to Baltrasol in his life. They give him the, the the invitation to go and practice there. He be, you know, he becomes one of the first black PGA professionals to play in the PGA championship, which is a major championship. So being able to bring those people into the environment that is my network helps them to be able to move around in the world. You know, Earl Cooper, right? He was a PGA professional. I got Earl. Earl, uh, Earl was a um, PGA pro. I've worked for the PGA pro. Earl was one of the first people to knock on my door to say, hey, you know, I'm, I write these children's books and I'm a PGA pro. I want to teach kids. So far, I said, come to the original T event. I'm going to let you run the whole youth component. You can introduce the kid, the, the young people to your books that you've written about black college and golf and so forth. And he was the, you know, he was the youth instructor at original T for many years. He came, he but let, let, let's, let's stop right there. Let's stop right there because that's a great example of your mentality and your DNA of once again, not about building followers, but building leaders, right? That's a perfect example of someone that you poured into. You gave them the gift of your time, your expertise, and your your resources um, and access. And now Earl is one of the co-founders of, you know, Eastside Vault, which is a huge disruptor, another disruptor within golf culture, right? And when you made that statement about, you know, I'm not about getting a bunch of followers. I'm about building and pouring into leaders, it, it hit me so hard because, you know, when I had my stint at Nike for over 14 years, it, the culture was so different in the beginning than when it got to the end of my tenure, meaning the beginning, it was about leaders building leaders, right? Pouring into other individuals to help their development, to thrive, to grow, to be leaders. It changed over the years to leaders building followers out of fear, right? Everybody wants to maintain their level or continue up the food chain, right? So it was by any means necessary. So that was a significant cultural shift. But the way that you just kind of put it into play of how you operate in terms of, I'm not looking for a bunch of followers. I'm literally looking to build leaders is so reflective of the importance of the type of culture and environment that you create with that type of mentality. And I look at all that you've done in the space of inclusion and, and, and being this change agent, which that's a very change agent-like mentality. And I, I realize that this literally goes all the way back to your early days of curating and promoting parties back in the day, like the Bone and Wind Tavern on the Green parties, which for those that don't know, 
it is it's a venue in Central Park that growing up as a youth, it, it wasn't necessarily a place where we could afford to go or felt even welcome to go. But you having those events in that space was so epic because the history and the look that you brought into that space. And I would always remember as a, as a youth looking in there and not seeing us, but then being able to enjoy a level of experience while others were now looking at us through those glass windows. Did you ever grasp the magnitude of what y'all were doing then? Aster, I really didn't understand the magnitude of it until much later in my life, but I knew what I was doing then at the time, right? Because you also have to, and then, you know, even in the golf space, those kinds of things kind of transferred over to the golf space, right? Yep. My people in the culture to places where they have never seen themselves. And, you know, Tavern on the Green at that time was an exclusive venue. Like no one was, it was able to, it was, no one was able to do, you know, anything, anything, a lot, a lot of money to rent out Tavern on the Green. Right. So, and, you know, and, you know, that was during the, the puffy era with daddy's house and the red zone and all those Ooh. things. Right? And those guys were doing some amazing parties for hip hop culture with Red Alert DJing and Kid Capri and all these things. So I'm like, wow, what, how can we, how can we, you know, kind of set ourselves apart and take people to a, an experience next level that they've not experienced before? And I would always go and seek out all of these different venues in New York City and just go talk to the management to see, you know, what would, you know, what would fly, you know, and. I went and talked to the folks at Tavern on the Green, told them we're working in the music industry and want to bring, you know, music executives and people here to have a good time. And we got in the doors of Tavern on the Green and were able to do, you know, have an amazing run and do things like Ball and Window then where people come and wear your tennis and go in your tennis and go, your country club gear. At that time, I didn't play golf or anything at that time. But it was just the lifestyle and the culture of it, being able to go to Tavern on the Green and wear your, you know, your your terry cloth sweats and your velour stuff and have and and you know it was cool man and it was fly and it was just like us expressing ourselves and be, knowing that we were in this this special place in manhattan that you really don't really have the opportunity to ever go to because you're never invited right? mm -hmm. never invited to go there but we were able to land that and show up and go and be our authentic selves and have a great time there and bring people an, another wonderful experience. So you know, the same mentality that I kind of took to golf, you know, like, you know, going to a golf course. And I would tell people like, as, as we get older and mature, we're going to be playing golf. We're going to be going to country clubs. We're going to be doing those things. So let me get onto that early. And that's right. There was a point where I transitioned to say, I'm not going to be doing parties in the city anymore and you know i'm, I'm gonna re retire from the party thing and i want to do something that's going to have longevity have a life of its own that may even be able to outlive me and that's what i was discovering about golf was like these golf tournaments like go on forever like it's about the history and their culture and you know it's like you're still talking about you know bobby jones and gene Saxon and all these people like 90, 90 years, 100 years later, it's like we need something like that for black culture that we can talk about that has longevity, that talks about our history, that educates the people on the contributions that we've made that can outlive me. <laughs> right. 
So that's why I created Original T and the Original T Golf Classic. And now it's, you know, I'm going into my 25 year anniversary next year. And so, so dope. hopefully this will be something that I can pass on to my son. You know, that's right. Next generation of people and it will outlive me and it will continue to grow and blossom and be something that is a vehicle to be able to continue to help others just as it happens in professional golf, right? The Brett's, the, you know, the U.S. Open, you know, the British Open, all these tournaments, all they are is, all those tournaments are, is they're great, they're great traditions. That's right, traditions. You're great tradition. Tradition. So I said, you know, I want to create a great tradition in golf for black culture. And you know what, Aster? It takes a lot of time to create a great tradition. Yeah, yeah. Just do once or twice and say I've created the great tradition. So now no. we are going into 25 years, and I'm so proud of what it has established, what it has become, how it as regard, how it's regarded in the future. And um, you know, and I got to You got to show up in 25 year anniversary. You got to. No, absolutely. I'm because I, you know, I've, I've been there. Obviously, I've experienced. I haven't been able to make recent ones. Just your yeah. skip. But to hear you say 25 years and the tradition piece, it, it sits even harder on my spirit to make it a priority. Not that that wasn't the case before, but you're, you're absolutely right. Um, you know, I look at in the realm of marketing and diversity and inclusion, you mentioned the value of education uh, and data and, and analytics uh, and key instinct as building blocks to leadership excellence. Can you provide like an example of, of these three elements and how they all kind of came together to shape a successful diversity and inclusion initiative for a client or somewhere that you work? I mean, you always have to look at the data so you can understand the landscape of the things that you're dealing with in real terms, right? Full of Great ideas, great intentions, and, and uh, but you always have to combine that with, with, with data. Right. So you understand what your challenges are, what you're up against and everything in business kind of, as you know, even with opportunities is, is about solving a problem. What, what problem does this solve? Because you can do things that are meaningful and have initiatives and things of that nature that are, that are awesome and that are meaningful and so forth, but they might not be seen as solving a problem. I'm going to digress for a minute, but. I'm going to get back to it. So take, for instance, the Charlie Sifred initiative, right? When I first started working at the PGA of America, I wanted to address kind of the root of the problem and go back to as far as we possibly could with people that were living, that were black, that had been overlooked by the the, the golf industry. Charlie Sifford, Lee Elder, those folks were, you know, Renee Powell, the Powell family. Those were people that were pro the, probably the oldest, some of the oldest living significant people in golf that had never been recognized. In baseball, you have Jackie Robinson. Charlie Sifford was off, off, was a lot of times referred to as the Jackie Robinson of golf. Of golf. That's just, what, you know, who is Charlie Sifford? Oh, he's a Jackie Robinson of golf. He broke the color barrier. And, uh, you know, I said, oh, wow. It's interesting how baseball treats Jackie Robinson but golf doesn't treat Charlie Sifford in the same regard. Jackie's numbers retired. You know, people, they have Jackie Robinson Day. That whole, you know, his his wife is still, you know, regarded as, you know, a significant figure in all of all of baseball. Charlie Sifford, not so much. You know, 
but then there 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 didn't a whole lot of other black players didn't come into golf as a result of Charlie Silver playing. There were some that did, but not like baseball. Golf still held on to their, you know, that culture of exclusion, and they had a strong hold on it. But I say this to say, the opportunity was right to get Charlie Sipper the Presidential Medal of Freedom at the time because Obama was in office and he was a golfer. That's right. I said, wow, this will be a great opportunity to try to get him the Presidential Medal of Freedom. Although that was a great initiative and I accomplished it, the people at the PGA of America, the leadership didn't even come to D.C. that to acknowledge him receiving the award and to congratulate him at the top. Are you serious? So I say that to say, for them, it wasn't really solving any kind of prop. prop you know, That's right. Initiative, but it doesn't solve any problem. But for me, I was trying to change the culture of a whole organization and saying, this is the time. Now is the time for me. So this wasn't as a result of any real data or any really or analytics or things of that nature. So, and you know this too, Sometimes with D, E, and I, it's hard to put numbers onto it. Uh, on it's, it's how it, how it has it after the bottom line. A lot of times people don't want to support you in D, E, and I initiatives unless you can say, "Here's the ROI of the business." That's right. That's right. This is how it helps the business. So even though the Charlie Sipper thing was groundbreaking, it was historic. It was a. It certainly. Um, uh, was well deserved and was something personally. It's for me. It's my biggest accomplishment because this is someone that I read about and you know learned about. Ended up you know meeting him, becoming friends, establishing a friendship, and then as a golfer to be responsible for getting him the Presidential Medal of Freedom from the first Black president. Monumental. But I was struggling to survive at, in my job at the same time because it wasn't really regarded as something of of huge significance in the way when you say you know analytics you know looking at the numbers and things of that nature right you take a guy like uh and i'm i'm gonna say this because this is still playing out and we just talked about earl right how do you impact the culture of golf you know taking the people that that play it put them in leadership you know allow them to be in leadership positions support and promote them and watch the influence that they have on others now, take That's right. in golf, the PGA of America is about the PGA professionals, the, the teaching pros, club professionals, not about the tour players. There are 28,000 28, teaching pros or PGA professionals, of which Earl is one. Mm-hmm. Wyatt Worthington is one. There are only about 150 black PGA professionals out of the 28,000. And you're not saying 2,800. I just want this to be very 20, clear. No, 28,000. 150 out of 28,000 in 2023-24 going on. So in looking at those numbers, to say, how can we impact those numbers? Because there's not going to be a drastic and wild increase in the number of PGA pro- people that become PGA professionals in a short period of time, right? It's not going to go from 150 people and not even in one year to five years to even go to 10,000, very high. Correct. Right. But looking at those numbers, how can we impact those numbers and the way that people play it and how it impacts the business? 
See, it's hard to justify why you need more black PGA professionals. No, I'm just saying in terms of the of the business. No, in in my opinion, yes, you get more people. Gotcha. It puts more, gotcha. It puts more black people into the economy. More money is made, right? You 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 have a better understanding of what PGA professionals do. So in my role, it was imperative that I get behind people like Earl and Wyatt and be able to promote them because there are only a few of them and of of those that were either dynamic or active or had a huge opportunity to impact the whole the culture of golf, right? And to see what Earl and Elijah are doing right now, this is not something that have, could have been planned or would have been even tangible to say, I'm gonna have this influence on these people and it's gonna result in this. In this level, right. Right. You don't know that it's gonna result in the level, but what you do is you create opportunities. And this is what, go back to my Urban League experience, when you create opportunities for people and put them in the, in the system where they are thriving and, and, and forming an economic base for themselves and others and being able to employ others in an industry, that's impacting an entire industry and a culture of golf. And once you impact culture, more people become engaged and you know, and things grow. That's how the game right. is going to grow, right? So right. using that, looking at those numbers and saying, how can I impact those numbers? You you put people in opportunities to be able to thrive. You promote, you know, you promote them in ways that have never even been seen before in this instance, because this is relatively, I mean, relatively unprecedented when it comes to yes. things that something like this could happen. Now, you know, I also made Steph Curry a golf ambassador while I was there for the PGA Pro, and and, and that was largely falling on deaf ears. I don't want to say deaf ears, but it was like he's not even a he's not a golfer. He's not a you know he's not a tour player. He's not my shit. Okay, but he's one of the most influential people in the world. And his dad taught him how to play. Jim taught him how to play basketball and golf, and he could have a huge impact on the game as a golf ambassador. That was me at the PGA of America. Right. And you look at the impact that those people have are having on this game right now. Even Steph Curry and Earl, uh, you know, and Eastside Golf alone, those are people that I identified when no one knew, you know, the significance, the significance of them even playing golf. And what they both what they're both doing right now and continue to do are uh, are as a result of identifying them, knowing them, putting in them opportunities to influence others. And you know, so crazy, so crazy is that that's that's even more of the reason why individuals like yourself need to be in these rooms and at these tables. But the wild thing is, while you were in that room and at that table, you were under a heavy scrutiny where you're worrying about even maintaining your job. When you are exceeding, you're exceeding the job description. You are truly taking on leadership qualities of breaking into white space. I can't even, it's so irony, breaking into white space. The opening scene to your life documentary is about to start. The win story. What song is playing and why, bro? You know, it's funny you should say that because uh, it would probably be, it would probably be something by Drake. For some reason, <laughs> for some reason, a lot of Drake stuff is is talking to me right now. It's probably what's in the heaviest rotation of my of my uh, of my playlists. 
that's very that's very significant. That's very significant, Astrid, to pick that that one song for so right. many different reasons. You know, uh, I, I got to come. You got to give me a little bit of time to think about that. I'm, I'm, I'm really uh, specific about my, my music. And that is that's a that's a big. Yeah, no, no. Think, think on it for a second. And as oh, it's a, the next piece that we, we always like to end with and. We, we always like to ask, you know, what are the three seeds that you'd want to leave with the stewards of culture moving forward? What are those three critical, imperative, you know, principles or values that you think are going to be very essential for those who are going to be shaping and molding this culture, you know, moving forward, even after we are around? Yeah. Three seeds? Yep. Um, education and research. I mean, as in one thing. Yep. Education is the key to advancement. I don't care what you're doing. And you have to research to know, you know, exactly what you're trying to impact, things that have been done before, and to know your history. Right. Those things are, are critical. Um, passion. Right? You have to be passionate about the things that you're doing because things, you know, when you're when you're advancing the ball forward, you have to be committed beyond belief, right? You there'll be frustrating moments, moments that you want to give up, moments when you have doubters and naysayers and even people close to you who may not have the same vision that you have for yourself, right? Or for what you're trying to accomplish. And sometimes those people are can be really, really, really close to you, you know? <laughs> and you gotta stay committed. To whatever it is that your vision is, and what the the goal, the things that you're setting for yourself, right? And you have to, and there's nothing that is uh, can replace that passion because that's that. Sometimes that's the only thing that you have to go on to keep yourself committed, to have some kind of a passion and a motivation and a drive to keep to keep uh, you know to keep on the path. So whatever that is. And I'm still on that path myself. You know, I still what have to motivate myself. I still have to find passion and and uh and you know, reevaluate things at time and be able to, you know, to shift and and um and the other thing is is pro is probably um a certain degree of I'm probably gonna add a fourth patience and execution. Yeah. Patience and execution. Um, certainly, you know, my, my, uh, I mean, I'm, I just told you, you know, my, my, I'm going into 25 years, um, of the tournament and my, my golf journey. There are things that I set out to do over 15 years ago, well, some, probably 20 years ago that I'm just getting the opportunity to be able to do now because of the wow. Right. So in the coming years, to many people, I might look like an overnight sensation of something. Right. Well, nah, not all not years. Years. Right. <laughs> because you know, you know me and people know me and people, you know, in our community and our circles know me. And but uh, you know, I'm not a household name or anything like that, but uh certainly some of the things that I'm working on that are coming to fruition that I you know, tried to accomplish many, many years ago, and the timing just was not right for me. Um, 
I'm just getting the opportunity to be able to do now. And certainly, uh, and I've had many disappointments along the way, you know. But no, comes with it. Yeah. Comes with it. Yeah, many disappointments along the way, but uh, that's part of my story. But, uh, you know, you have to stay committed and have the passion, and then you have to continue to execute. I mean, because execution, execution is everything, because if you can't, you know, there are a lot of people that you, that of course, you know, that have, that have uh, ideas, Aster, but they don't execute. They don't execute. It really doesn't matter. And and at times that person has been me. You know what? And to be frank, I mean, this is one of the reasons why I wanted you on to share what what I've known and, and now see even more clearly your evolution of, you know, what diversity and inclusion looks like. You've done it in so many different realms and so many different ways. And I've seen it firsthand over the years. And I wanted to applaud you, but also provide a space for that to be shared. And so for that, I, I truly want to thank you. I want to pat you on the back and give you all the accolades of being a noticer and an observer of the things that you've done in a very huge impactful way that for many others might get recognized in another 10 to 25 years. Who knows? Right. <laughs> But it's the amazing seeds that you planted. And for that, Wayne, I thank you, man. Astrid, thank you. Likewise, brother. And I have a great deal of respect and admiration for you. The, 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 the walls that you've been able to penetrate, right? Being a, uh, a connector and always an advocate for, for folks and opportunities and getting into some of those doors and being able to advocate for others and the culture. You know, um, they're, they're also very few people who have been able to accomplish some of the things that you've accomplished. We could probably sit down and name those people on one hand, you know, some of these great companies that we admire, like the Nikes and Adidas and so forth. Right. But uh, certainly uh, your, you know, your experience and your expertise has gotten you into some great places and you continue to be a, a changer and an advocate for, for all of us. And we're all extremely proud of you as well. Thank you, bro. It's to God's grace. We truly appreciate your support because it helps us fulfill our mission of promoting cultural awareness and personal development. Please click the subscribe button below to help ensure and solidify our mission.